that at the moment we just measure a success of an economy by how much bigger than last year. I mean, imagine, you know, with your kids, right? If, if you know, if there is a, there is a while in the evolution of, of your children where the fact that they're bigger than they were last year is considered part of this is a good, this is they're growing in the right direction, they're bigger than they were before. If that was the only measure, and they just kept on growing and growing and growing till they're about 50 meters tall, after a little while, you'd think something's going really, really wrong here. You know, actually what you want your kids to do is to grow ideally to just be slightly shorter than you are and then to start growing in different ways to become kinder and wiser and more skilled and more connected and more resourceful actually we don't we don't have that assumption for our economy we just say is it bigger than last year grand okay that's good then you know the fact that with the fact that cancer rates are rising and anxiety is rising and uh, people are less and less able to walk home on their own after dark. And there's more, you know, all, all the things that we don't want to happen in society, we don't measure, we don't factor those in. That was honestly one of the most amazing interviews I've, I've been part of. What an incredible man. Okay, this week, uh, we were total fanboys. This has been someone that we've admired for a long period of time, never actually got to meet and have a chat with, and I've admired his work for over a decade now. I'd say two decades. Yeah. This is the wonderful Rob Hopkins, where we had one of the most fun conversation, imagining a new future, discussing how to build resilient economies. We discussed reimagining the 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 the, the, the energy system, the school system, the economies. And Rob, if you don't know, he's the founder of Transition Towns, so which is a movement which is now across the world in fifty different countries with so many different projects right across it. But it's about the core of it is about how to harness the power of the collective and turn our communities into become more resilient, more well, healthier local economies that are more thriving. They work for all of us. It was such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed this. I, I'm going to listen to this one time and time again. I really will. And yeah. There's so much in it that I want to apply. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. Yeah, it's been such a great conversation. Stay tuned for one of the most fun conversations we've had. And please get involved and help us all build the resilient economy that we all want to yeah, be part of. Let us know on social what you thought of this. And, and come join us and let's build a better world. Beautiful. Thanks, Steve. Okay, here we'll we go. We'll put membership for the cult down below. That was a joke, by the way. Anyway, enjoy. Uh, okay, great. Well, let's jump straight into it. I want to I I start off by just back about 13 years ago, we started, we had come across your work and we were inspired to start our own Transition 10 movement in Greystones, our small little town, which we, we grew up in. And uh, we ended up a bunch of people. We had a number of meetings and we had all our different groups, as you suggested. There was an energy group. There was a transport group. There was... And I remember I was head of the transport group and we decided that we'd get a whole load of old bikes from people. We'd get people to drop in all their old bikes and we, we ended up getting hundreds of bikes. We had literally hundreds of bikes down the back of the shop and people kept dropping them for the, for the few, few years, subsequent years. And uh, the idea was to go to the local secondary schools and get the teenagers to come help fix them with the help of the retirement group. And we were going to paint them up and they were going to be a sustainable transport solution for Greystones. And we had great ideals. And, uh, and then I think we had kids. We had and, 200 and bikes sitting in down the back of the Happy Pair <laughs> rotting. Yeah, for a number of years until I can't, I can't remember exactly what happened to them. But you're, just just... Getting me, you're just getting me on here to say, and it's all your fault, Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it was, it was I think your work is inspiring. I love what you do. We started the Happy Pair with the idea of building more sustainable communities and your work has been part of the cornerstone and everything you do, we have great admiration. So I'd love to start off if you could. So, so people that are listening here, they might not know about Transition Towns or about you. So could you kind of tell us about 
how it came about. I think you started in 2005 and then where it's at today. Yeah, sure. Well, I lived in, I, I lived in Ireland. Uh, I lived in West Cork. And then uh, 2005, we moved back to southwest of England. We didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't, we, it was all a bit up in the air. And then we came back and, uh, and I just had this kind of idea, like I'd had my sort of, climate change dark night of the soul i guess in about 2004 and then really wanted to sort of try and figure there was felt, felt like there was all the stuff you can do on your own like you know buy organic food and fly less and don't buy a car and all that and then there's the stuff that we know the governments need to do with great urgency but there was a bit in the middle that was so what can we do then in in our town with the people that we have and the resource that we have and there's something we can do at this scale that nobody else can do and that was really the idea and then we just started here in Tottenham as a kind of a as an experiment really like would, do, would it work could we do something here that might work and then very quickly, people from other parts of the country and the world started hearing about it and coming along. And when we did a big launch, we called it the Great Unleashing of Transition Town Totnes in 2006. There were already people there from seven or eight different places who'd heard about it somehow. And they just started taking off. Ridiculous. And uh, we had to start an organization called Transition Network to support the spread of the transition movement. So there's now transition groups in 50 countries around the world, thousands of places and uh doing really amazing things so it's beautiful so the thing i love about it is like you know we live in a culture which is like if you have an idea you have to you have to control it all you know you have to franchise it and you have to market it and you have to hold your intellectual property and actually the transition movement is a beautiful example of starting something that gives people permission and giving them and trusting them to do it giving them tools and principles connecting them together with stories that are shared across that movement and trusting them to do great things and there's not a week goes past when we don't go well look would you look what they're doing in such and such a place or what they're doing here or there or anywhere you know it's it's a it's beautiful and it's it's part you know it's not the only solution but it is it's a really key part of the solution a kind of missing piece of the puzzle i think and didn't you start it, Rob? You started it with uh, putting on a video of, it was probably a video back then, not even a DVD, <laughs> a VHS of um, peak oil. And you believed you started it as this kind of uh, an antidote to climate change. And you found out, I remember listening to a video recently where it kind of ended up being much more about cultural impact than it was actually about climate change and harnessing the, the power of the collective. I think when we started, we were motivated by a few different things. One of them was was climate change. Uh, one of them was this idea called peak oil, which at the time was very sort of uh, there was a lot of a lot of stuff being written about it and talked about, which was the idea that the world was very close to the peak in in oil production, and the thing that the thing that mattered more was. It wasn't that one day we were going to run out of oil, but it was the point when you you went from having more every year to having less every year that was a really important kind of inflection point. I think we always argued that, you know, you had peak oil, you had climate change, you had economic contraction and different things that were all, would take it in turns to come to the front. It's like watching a horse race, you know, which is going to be the biggest, uh, the worst thing it's going to be. Then maybe it's going to be that, maybe it's going to be that. And I think what happened after a little while was, it became clear that the actually the peak in what's called conventional oil, which is the stuff you drill, it's like in 
where you just drill a hole in the ground and it comes out. That's happened. We're, we're past that. But I think the production of unconventional oil like tar sands and fracking actually stretched that curve out a lot further. And the argument that we have to leave it in the ground anyway because it's a climate and ecological emergency really overtook. So we don't really talk about peak oil anymore as a kind of a driver for the transition movement. And actually, when we started going out to people who were doing transition and saying, why are you doing this? They would say, yes, climate emergency, ecological emergency. It's also because we want to economically regenerate our town. It's because this place needs a new culture. It's because... And the culture piece that you mentioned was, I always talk about how actually when you do transition, you have when you start it in a place, you have no idea where it's going to go. It's not a linear process where you do this and then this happens, and then that happens, and then that happens. It's more like you inoculate it with a kind of mycorrhizal fungus and it spreads through that culture and it pops up in some places you expect and it pops up in loads of places where you really don't expect. So if you're a control freak, transition is the wrong thing for you. <laughs> you really need to be able to trust people to do things and to be able to kind of let it go in that way. Beautiful. Can you give some examples for anyone listening of some of the, like Totnes is obviously the closest example to you because that's where you're based. Could you talk about like, because that's obviously been the hub of transition towns, as you call it. Could you talk about the experience on Totnes and some of the highlights and the highs and lows? Because that makes it very tangible for anyone listening that hasn't quite understood it. Very good. Well, the first thing says is, is that people in Totnes would be very would be very pleased with your pronunciation of it. So, so people who are kind of from Totnes call it Totnes. People who aren't call it Totnes, like Loch Ness. If you put, if you pronounce it Totnes, it's, it gets frowned upon by some people. So, uh, yeah. So we started doing transition, yeah, two thousand and six, I guess. So, and there have been maybe sixty or seventy different projects that have emerged through it over that time. And some of those are kind of short-term things uh, that sort of come and go. Some of them are, I, I, the way I like to think of Totnes as being like a kind of a sort of Silicon Valley of community resilience. Like we kind of come up with things and we try them out and sometimes they work here and sometimes they don't. And so, and they, but then those ideas often spread out to other places. So for ages, we, we were one of the first places here that really I'm playing around with the idea of local currency. We had a currency called the Totnes Pound, which ran for about 11 years uh, and which stopped about two years ago. And partly it stopped, because, it stopped main, mainly because people stopped using cash. Like no one used cash. There were shops who had said, oh, yeah, we've got a float. We haven't used it for about three weeks. And it was a paper-based <laughs> currency because we were too small a place to, to have an electronic one. And... Um, and so the idea kind of, we did it, I mean, we kept it going for 11 years. It was amazing living in a town. We had a 21 pound note, you know, so people would say, why have you got a 21 pound note? And we would say, well, why not? You know, do what, <laughs> it was a beautiful kind of uh, story. And that story spread because of a film called Tomorrow. It spread all across France and I was in it holding up a 21 pound note. Most places you go to now in France have a local currency and they have, a, and they've changed the model. So it works much, much better. Uh, than here 
And um, there are now municipalities in France who are seeing the local currency as a key part of their economic regeneration strategies. And and, I, and you go to places where they have a 13 note and a 49 note, and it's just this beautiful kind of, well, we'll do what we like, thank you very much, kind of spirit. There's can you talk, Rob, Rob, can you just explain, uh, sorry to totally interrupt and ruin your flow there, but uh, it's often many people don't understand the importance of a local currency with which to keep money within the economy. Can you talk briefly about that just to someone who's new to this with fresh eyes and ears and are kind of like, why would I have a local currency? What does other, that do? Other than the fun, like, because I know there's a little video that I've seen you put on a couple of times. It was like, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you imagine like uh, the place where you live, the town or the city where you live as being like a bucket, right? And, and, and money comes into that bucket from grants from central government, from people's money and pensions and different stuff comes into that bucket. At the moment, most of that money just leaves through holes in that bucket. Every time you shop on Amazon, anytime you shop in a supermarket, anytime you pay your energy bills, uh, that money just leaves. But the more we can make that money stay and do stuff there before it leaves, the more resilient and economically interesting that place is. You know, if, if you live in a town where, where the only place is to shop are supermarkets, like so in, in my town, for example, we figured we did a, a study a while ago, and we have maybe one of the strongest sort of local food economies in the country. Just historically, that's how the town has been. But we figured out we spend 30 million pounds every year on food and 22 million of that we spend in two supermarkets. And that's and which means, you know, you say, well, a, a third of it is spent in the local food economy. In most places, other, other places where we did it, maybe 97 percent of the money spent on food is spent in supermarkets. Imagine if that money was spent into locally owned businesses and cooperatives. So that money, rather than leaving, actually stayed in that place. You know, you can, I'm, I'm one of the big projects I'm part of here in, in the town is called Atmos Totnes, which is one of the most exciting, ambitious things I'm involved with, which is the community-led regeneration of an old factory site next to the train station in the town. And it's kind of, it's kind of the logic of a local currency taken up to the scale of a whole development, right? So we ran this amazing consultation in a town of 9,000 people, more than four and a half thousand people contributed their ideas as to what should happen in that site. We said, this is a blank slate. Anything can happen here. And the community designed it. It came to all these workshops. They designed something with 62 homes that are genuinely affordable for local people, a hotel run as a community enterprise, uh, the biggest music and arts venue west of Bristol, uh, all powered by renewable energy. The important bit is that it's all in community ownership. So the business model is that, that actually, rather than just getting a big national contractor to come in and build it, we train local people, we hire local builders. It means that two million pounds a year that would otherwise leave the town stays in the town. And once it's built and everyone's paying rent and everything's generating money, it's generating three million pounds a year for the community to decide what it wants to do with. You think, imagine if 25 years ago, someone in this town had built a development that did that, we'd have two, three million pounds every year to decide what we want to do with how transformative would that be? That's just one development. You know, when you design a, a kind of a culture and an infrastructure that says the money needs to stay here rather than leave, that's the kind of cutting edge of 21st century economics for me. You look at the city of Preston in the north of England, they have, they're now talked about as the Preston model, which is they looked at their the seven main organizations in that city who spend public money, the hospital, the university, the schools, whatever, the police, 
between them, they spend 750 million quid every year, right? Buying stuff, procuring food and services and different things. They said, where does that money go? And they found that only 4% of it went into the local economy. So their, their, their job is to maximize the well-being of the economy of Preston, but they've created an economic model where most of it just leaves. So they're now changing how do you do things? How do we make sure when the hospitals buy things, they buy local food, they buy local services, they support different things. And now they've got it up to about 30%, I think. And that all that money then stays locally and gives people so much more control. You get away from that kind of extractive economics to something that's about how do we make it stay locally. And, and local currencies, you, you can do this without them. But they're a really interesting tool and they're a really good sort of thing to get people thinking about, well, I could just spend this in the supermarket or actually I could I could go and spend it in local businesses. And, and it's, a, it's a good kind of mental tool, really. Amazing. Amazing. Love- I've had this crazy idea for the last month with the kind of rise of Bitcoin and crypto coins and kind of gone, how could we harness like people are investing money in these crypto coins that they don't really know much about? And could we create a local crypto coin? that somehow is listed on these exchanges, but the money benefits the local economy. Have you ever heard of any examples of that? Has my crazy idea been you know, done I, by someone yet? About three years ago, I got invited to go to, I can't remember where it was now. Uh, no, I think it was, to be a speaker at, at, a, at a blockchain uh, um, currency uh, conference. I said, you do understand I really don't understand this shit at all. I have no idea how how the block how what Bitcoin, how it even works. Doesn't matter, come anyway. So I went to give a talk and I just I just talked about local currencies kind of as we did them. I think the the, the problem it was good to see Elon Musk yesterday announcing that they were going to withdraw from uh, doing anything to do with Bitcoin because it's so energy intensive. It takes a massive amount of fossil fuel and coal. To generate uh, to generate bitcoins, I have no idea what the process is, but environmentally it's catastrophic. So I think it would be lovely to come up with some sort of, uh, and again this takes people far smarter than me, but some version of Bitcoin which is actually uh, created by people doing good things, you know, or or you know, could we have a a, a currency like that that's actually backed by local biodiversity or something that's worth beautiful? How how diverse things are, or or how everybody is have a well-being currency that's worth more on as well-being indicators go up i don't know something like that i don't know much about how these things work but i know that uh that yeah something like that could be really good i think she's good because i loved you even mentioning that term um biodiversity okay i can go off on that one but maybe, maybe i'll keep it down you're, <laughs> you're a huge uh extolent is that the word i'm trying to use big words here now but you're a huge advocate for the importance of imagination and i heard in one of your talks you spoke about there's been a decline in in kind of imagination in the population at large due to the current living i wonder could you speak about the importance of imagination and why it has declined and i know you've written a book recently called what is to what what if if, i believe something all 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 about it the importance of the what if questions i started listening to your podcast it's very good Great, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I saw a podcast called From What to What Next, which was my lockdown project, uh, which has rather taken on a life of its own. Yeah, I. Uh, so Arundhati Roy, the Indian writer, she said, what lies ahead? Reimagining the world. Only that, which I just, I want that on a t-shirt. I think that's so beautiful. Uh, yeah, basically, you know, the climate and ecological emergency that we're in demands that we reimagine everything. You know, we need to reimagine transport, food, education, everything, because the scale of what needs to happen in the next 10 years is huge. And, and to live through the next 10 years, if we're successful, 
will have felt like living through a revolution of the imagination. And you cannot build what you cannot imagine, right? You, like Naomi Klein says, there are no non-radical solutions left. The time for little kind of itsy-bitsy incremental steps, like let's push this up a decimal point here, there. No, 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 no. We, we have to completely reimagine education from the beginning. We have to imagine, reimagine how our economics work. And the, the problem is that our collective imagination, which should be like this, is actually more like this. You know, it's really something where we've spent the last, I think, 20 years really designing a perfect storm of things that are really ruinous to the, the, the human imagination. We know that that if you are uh, traumatized, anxious, stressed, is really not good for the imagination. We know the imagination needs space. And at the moment, we just fill all that space with iPads and the phones in our pockets. And the chief exec of Netflix recently said that their biggest competition wasn't Amazon or Apple, it was sleep. Um, so that kind of daydreaming space is disappearing out of our lives. And we know that uh, uh, imagination flourishes more when we spend more time outdoors when we are able to have an education system that doesn't just test everything and measure everything to death, and when we read more books, so on and so on and so on. There, there are factors we can create that are good for the imagination, and we've really created the opposite. So the book says, we recognize in a population that if people don't have a good enough diet, you're going to see a rise of preventable illnesses and stuff. If a population doesn't have a good education system, you're not going to be able to reach your potential. But somewhere just over here, the collective imagination is kind of shrinking and shrinking and desiccating and drying out, and no one seems to be noticing. So the point of the book was to say, no, no, we need to put that back in the middle of the table here and go, this really matters. Like, what happened? What? That we're in a situation where our survival depends on our ability to reimagine everything. And we're giving it no priority. We're giving it no space. We're, we're not, we're not, uh, we, we have an education system in the UK which is trying to design imagination out all together. You know, it's about science, technology, English and maths and the arts. There are now whole schools and colleges where there is no funding for art at all and no space for it at the very worst time that that's possible. So, so the book is really an argument to say the imagination really matters and we need to design space for it and we need to build what I think of as an imagination infrastructure in society, what, what does it look like to build the infrastructure in a society where the imagination is cherished and valued and, and supported? That's that's really one of the big things we need to be doing over the next few years, I think. Amazing. I love this. Amazing. I absolutely love this. For anyone listening, Rob, how and kind of going, okay, I want all that. How, how, for top tips for anyone listening, or even for me, to kind of encourage more imagination in me and my children. I could, could, I, could I have a, could I no, ask no, you about can, that? But I would imagine, I would imagine it's play and it's nature and it's space and it's those, like those are the basics. If you look at a five-year-old, they're like, they've lots of space. They like to play. They like to daydream. Like that, that, that would be what I would yeah. imagine. Some, yeah, you're right. I was, I was just going to say, you're, you're beautiful. You're, you're the two most enthusiastic people who've ever interviewed me. This is really rather lovely. Uh, <laughs> We're having a ball. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, so play is fundamentally important to this. And we've seen uh, an enormous decline in play. Like, you know, when I was a kid, 
kids went out and played all day. Kids used to go walking with their mates, like miles and miles away from home. No one knew where they were at all. Kids had a whole culture of songs and stories and games that were theirs. Places adults didn't even know exist. And that kind of culture of unstructured play was fundamental. And actually what's happened since is kids have retreated indoors to tablets, either of the, 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 the digital or the, or the medical kind. And we've seen a massive rise in mental illness among young children as that has been taken away. And I visited a street when I was researching the book in Bristol, where they do a thing called playing out, where uh, every during the summer, every Wednesday evening, they close the street so kids can play in it. And I talked to one of the mums who said, you just have to take the cars away and play happens. It's not like it's disappeared, but you have to create a space for it and a safe place for kids to play. And I spoke to one of the dads who said, uh, well, after about six months of doing this, we realized that we actually quite liked each other. You know, you could see how a kid, a street full of kids playing gave the people on that street a reason to interact with each other. It was part of what strung that community together. So I think reconnecting with play as parents, giving our kids space to play in a way that's not here's an iPad or um, let's play, um, you know, that, that, that is that kind of let's pretend free unstructured play, the kind of play when you were a kid that you always longed your parents to do with you, where they would get down on your level and say, let's pretend like, you know, that kind of thing is really precious. I think time outdoors is really vital. I think, I think um, creating a different relationship with the smartphones in our pockets is really important because uh, they are, designed to be addictive in a way that we are evolutionarily incapable of resisting and they gobble up so much time when we would otherwise be dreaming or telling stories or whatever i think we have to bear in mind that imagination is something that's best done with other people so we need to create the spaces and the opportunities where people can do that kind of what i like to think of as sort of what if spaces you know we need to we need to all i think become better at facilitating uh, and our, and our, the, the change that, you know, Gil Scott Heron did that very famous song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. I think if he did it now, it would be called The Revolution Will Be Well Facilitated because we all need to really master the skills of doing that and, and, and facilitating spaces where people's imaginations are really invited. I think we need to read more, read more novels. And we also need to surround ourselves with stories of change, of good change. The world's full of them. You never read them in the newspaper and you rarely see them on the telly, but the world is full of them. And when you're being imaginative, basically what you're doing, the part of your brain where your imagination fires from, called the hippocampus, is also where your memory is. So you have this part of your brain, which is your imagination and your memory. Because when you're being imaginative, you're basically going to the kind of memory cupboards in your imagine in, in your in your brain and looking through them and going, oh yeah, cool. There's this bit. And there's this bit. And then when you put them together and make something new, that's the imagination piece. So we can, when we're trying to dream a different future, we can only be as imaginative as we have inspiring stuff in our cupboards. If you go to the cupboards and it's just full of articles out of the Daily Mail or something, because that's all we ever looked at, it's really hard to imagine a low carbon future. But the world is full of towns reimagining their food system, their energy system, their transport system. And we need those stories as well. And the last thing I would just say is, as you said, it's about space. 
we have to create some space in our lives because at the moment we work harder, we spend longer working, we have a work culture that follows us home, that expects us to be responding to emails at two o'clock in the morning, that just sort of invades, you know, I was saying, you know, 30 years ago, if you were, if you went to the loo and the postman just barges way in through loads of letters at you, you tell him to clear off. And But actually now, that just that work culture just follows us everywhere. So we need to make space for for just sitting, for walking, for being outdoors, for ourselves, for our mental capacity, meditation, yoga, drawing, writing, all of that stuff is really important for the imagination. That's that's such a good analogy of sitting in the toilet and the postman coming because I got in the habit of sitting in the toilet and looking at my phone, like, and I know it's not unhygienic, it's, and, but I think lots of people listening probably do it too. Totally. And I, and I for Lent, for Lent. And my Jake, Lent, like, you, you know, for Lent, Lent, lots of people give up sweets. And, and I said, I'm going to give up looking at my phone when I sit in the toilet. And now I've still kept that happen. Can I even, Dave even called it, I'm going to do analog dumps. That was <laughs> Dave called that. that. was my, that was my Lenten thing. And I've kept it going. And I now sit here and I ponder other things or whatever. And that is the worst like, name for a band. Yeah, well, there you go. Anyway, but uh, I was also thinking one more thing in terms of imagination, which I think is really key is as well. We live in a culture now where we're so focused on perfection and excelling in one certain area. And I think imagination needs no limits and where there is no silly mistakes because we're all so afraid. And I look at myself, afraid to make mistakes or start things new. And I think reimagining things and cultivating new imagination is that, that childhood innocence of like cultivating that within ourselves where it's like you can't imagine things unless you go back to being wrong with loads of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the things that has been most damaging to our imagination has been this thing of, in school, being set a problem, and there's one solution to it. And that solution's in your teacher's head. And if you get it wrong, then you've failed. You know, when, when else do you get, you know, you have a problem in, your problem arises in your life. Okay, so you need to think around it. There's, there's different ways that I can do this. So, so that idea of, there being many different ways to solve a problem is, is, is really, really important. And, and I think one of the, I'm a great believer in mess that, that, that actually, that I always think it's, it breaks my heart when I go around and I, and I have friends or I could visit places with, with small kids and everything is completely tidy. Uh, and, and actually I have four kids. My eldest is 27 now, my youngest is 19. And, uh, their friends used to say, Oh, we love coming around to your house. It was like going around to the Weasley's house. In the- <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's not, everything's not tidy. I love, do you know what I mean? And I, and I read recently a book, the biography of Tove Jansson, who wrote the Moomin books, which were my kids' favorite books when they were little, just beautiful, kind of Icelandic. Was she Icelandic or Finnish? I can't remember. Anyway, she was, she was an amazing artist. And it talked about how she grew up in a house where her parents, I think her dad was a sculptor, her mum was a painter or something. And the house was just full of stuff and paint and people coming and going. And, 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 you know, I, I think we, it's, it's, that kind of stuff is really, really important. It's not about everything being perfect. And we need to be, we need to be willing to take risks and we need to celebrate failure. That if you try something and it doesn't work, great. What did you learn? What can we learn from that? You know, that, that it's in, in the transition movement, we really try and encourage this thing of just try things, you know, just have a go. What have we got to lose? It's like, because where else can you do that? If you're working for the council and you try something, it doesn't work. They'll probably fire you. You know, if you follow the football, you know, if you, if you haven't won 
if you lose three games in a row, everyone wants to kick you out, you know. And actually, so where do we have a culture where you can try and you can experiment and and think some things don't work and some things do work and that's fine. And uh, there's a lovely story about Edison when he invented the light bulb, where he it took something like ten thousand different models uh, before he came up with a commercially viable light bulb. And when he'd made like nine and a half thousand light bulbs, and none of them had worked, someone said. Uh, this is, you're not doing very well here, mate. And uh, I think you might be, this might be a bit of a failure. He said, no, 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 no. What I have discovered is the nine and a half thousand ways to not make a light bulb. You know, that's really, that's, that's a really particular kind of success too. You know, so it's, it's only really, the beautiful thing for me about the transition movement is that, is that it's just people all over the world just trying stuff out and sharing their learnings. And that's how we learn. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And here in Totnes, there have been quite a few projects that we've started in transition. They haven't worked, but we've tried them out and we share the learnings. And, and that's how we might figure all of this out, I think. Can you talk about some of the successes okay, in Totnes? I just wanted to just pick, okay. there was a couple of things that just that I picked up on when you were talking there and, and that I lit a big my spark really in my head. One was the importance of unstructured play. And it's something that I've become aware of. And it's only when you say it and you put words on it that it's like, that's what I've been pushing back against. Like when we grew up, you never had structure. You seldom had structured play. You just called over to your mates and you kicked a ball on the road and you played tip the can or you played curbsies or you played whatever you were playing that day. And now I notice with my own kids, it's play dates. There's a lot of play dates going on. I'm kind of like, why is it always a play date? And Theo, my, my uh, middle son, or yeah, my middle child and my middle son, uh, <laughs> he's extremely social and always wants to be with his mates and always wants to be playing and always wants stimulation. And he keeps asking, can you organize a play date? And I kept pushing back with him going, Theo, call down to his house. If you want to play with him, call down. No, I'm not calling his mom. I'm not calling down with you. You got to learn to be independent and you got to like go after what you want. And that sense of that unstructured play where he's got to go and brave it himself and create that environment for him to stimulate himself and that type of thing. And I think when I tie that to mental health, my wife is a clinical psychologist and she often says a really important sign of someone's mentally health is the sense of the ability to be spontaneous and how that's so important because you're being in the moment and you're working what you have and the nature of being spontaneous is to remove yourself often from structure because you're just going with what's happening. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Stephen. That was wonderful. Thank you. No, no, I did enjoy that. Sorry, I'm not being facetious. Uh, Can I ask, (laughs) do you mind if I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind giving some examples from Totnes of some of the things that have really worked that are great examples, tangible examples for anyone listening? Because I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation, but someone listening might go, so what are they all talking about? (laughs) <laughs> yeah they might well uh so for example we have a great project called food and community which goes out to a local big uh organic farm and uh they're grayed out which is the food that's not quite good enough to go in their vegetable boxes they they sort through that food and then they distribute that food to low-income families who are in food need and that that project has been really really important during covid uh, we had something called Transition Streets that we started, which was where we're saying, all right, in a town where we want to help people to use less energy, use less water, use less resources, how do you do that? What do you, how, like, how do you do that? Do you send people a DVD in the post? I mean, what, what do you do? So we designed something called Transition Streets where um, you meet seven times, you, you form a group on your street of six to 10 of your neighbors. You meet in each other's houses seven times. You look at water one week, food the next week, whatever you make, and you make different changes. 
We've done that now with 550 households in in, in the town, and on average, they cut their carbon footprint by about 1.3 tons. So that that's now having a big regeneration. We've got a community-owned energy company called Totnes Renewable Energy Society, which installs renewable energy and invites the community to invest in it. One of my favourite things that came. And what what is that one? Will you tell a little bit more about that? Was the solar panels on top of? Was it a it was some sort of a, it was like a, a retail store? I remember watching something about that. There's a there's um there's, well there's lots of solar there's solar now on on our doctor's surgery. There's solar on the main uh, sort of public building in the middle of town. There's lots of there's lots of houses with it. It's it's yeah it's and we've, there's an amazing hydro scheme on the river which now generates uh, lots of energy from 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 the river and the community invested something like one and a bit million pounds uh, towards that being realized so community it's really important because it's energy that as a community you own and then you benefit from rather than the, the money leaving the town stays locally and and how does that work at the numbers level because like you know the way you say that the community own it does the community somehow you raise the money people like i chip in a tenner steve chips in a tenner because even to create a context back a number of years ago we tend to be quite dreamers uh we explored the idea of getting a big uh wind generator to set up some um wind power remember that and we kind of yeah. we're doing the numbers on it and we kind of got really high that was now that was proper imagination that wasn't okay. but those weren't really basically <laughs> right. but anyway back to the numbers of say that that uh local energy system so the community raises money and they all buy solar panels the solar panels go up on the roof the solar panels feed energy back into the grid and the government pays you money on a consistent basis is that how it works yeah something like that yeah yeah so so you you would buy so the the energy company would say, if you invest in our solar scheme, we will give you a 5% return for 15 years on your investment or whatever. You know, so, so there's, there's a way that, um, that they invite people to invest and then the renewable, the, the energy and the, and the tariffs that are generated by that renewable energy rather than going to a private company are then distributed among the members. So there's many community energy projects through transition. Some of them have really, the one in Bath, uh, came up with a model where people could move their pensions into a community-owned energy company. So, so, and they've raised something like 13, 14 million pounds. And there's some really great models for, for, for community energy. It's, it's something that, uh, uh, that, that works really well, I think. It yeah. sounds like a great store of wealth in that, you know, you could put money into some fixed asset like a wind turbine or something that generates electricity. And generates consistent returns yeah. for the community, you know. Totally. And so in Denmark, it's a huge thing in Denmark. Like people put their money in wind turbines more than the bank because you, you generate more money from a wind turbine than you do from leaving it in the bank. Um, just a, a couple of things to mention from Tottenham. So one of them is a project called Transition Homes, which is now just started building 39 homes uh using a lot of local materials uh as something which is designed to which will be in community ownership and is about meeting housing need because there's a huge problem around here of people not being able to afford to live here the average house price the average salary in Tottenham is about twenty five thousand pounds a year and the average house price is about three hundred fifty thousand pounds a year so there's a huge gap of people who live here but can't afford to who work here but can't afford to live here so, so that's building homes, and then that's also what the Atmos project I mentioned at the beginning is doing. And and how does that how does that housing one work again? Like, so say the community come together, they raise money, everyone chips in a tenner, for example. You raise a million euro or a million pounds. You buy a field. You get architects to do up designs. You design thirty nine houses that are using local materials or whatever. 
and then you sell them at affordable prices. Well, you yeah, that's, that's your choice. You, you can either sell them at affordable prices or what we're planning to do with the Atmos project is that you fund them by borrowing money over 25, 30 years. And then the rent from, from those houses then pays that money off over that time. So, so the, the beauty of that is that a project like the Atmos project, which is going to be 62 homes built on this old industrial site, and as well as a hotel and the music, all the other stuff I mentioned before, that once that's built, it'll be generating two, three million pounds every year for the community to then do with as it, as it decides to do once the loans are paid off. You know, so there are economic models where we, we just get so used to thinking you get a piece of land, you build the houses, you flog them for as much as you can get, and then you make some money. Actually, you can tweak that model a lot. You can say, actually, we're going to uh, see if maybe the, the council has some land that they could give us. Then you knock off the, the, the cost of buying the land because it's a social, you're doing something with a social purpose. Then you say, actually, we're going to borrow the money over 30 years rather than 20 years. So that means it's, it's cheaper. We're going to build them in a particular way that's a kind of low cost way, maybe that people can get involved with themselves and learn skills and build their own homes. And then they pay less rent. Again, then you bring that down again. So, so that model can be tweaked and changed so that you can create a model that serves the community rather than the profit for private developers. You know, there's two very different models here. And just because we're used to one doesn't mean that the other one is, wouldn't actually be better. I love that. I really love that. That kind of really, boom, my mind's gone all over the room. Um, one thing that um, strike as another point that came to me there was the importance of biodiversity in, in a community, but also in nature, like to, to make nature resilient, the more biodiverse nature systems are, the more biologically resilient they are. And similarly, if we look at our own health, 70% of our immune system exists in our microbiome as in mm. our small intestine. And the more diverse the microorganisms in our microbiota, the more resilient our um, immune system and our overall health is. And similarly, uh, I'm becoming more aware of the importance of diversity and the importance of to, to have a resilient community. Yeah, I mean, diversity the, is one of the kind of cornerstones of resilience uh, in whatever way you know whether it's cultural diversity uh, uh um you know a better understanding of gender diversity and uh uh you know it's it, it's it's that thing of international kind of neoliberal capitalism just wants to make everything the same so that we're all buying the same brands of toothpaste and we're all driving the same cars and we're all eating the same chocolate bars and you know whereas actually it's for me one of the one of the things you know one of the projects i hadn't mentioned actually which which i've been very involved with in the town over the last little while has been that we started a brewery we started a kind of a transition brewery called the new line brewery as a sort of social enterprise craft brewery because i went to the us and i saw this was at a time in england where every pub you went into basically had three beers on a stout a best and a bitter whatever you know and they were all the same wherever you went and and I went to this bar in Boston and they had 80 different beers on from breweries within the Boston region. I was like, fuck, this is awesome. Really? What's going on here? And I'd never tasted beer like this, but those were kind of really hoppy, crafty kind of IPA beers. I was like, oh my God, why don't we have a brewery in Totnes? And then we dug around and we found that historically there had been a brewery in Totnes up until 1921 that was called the Lion Brewery. So the whole conversation was, how do we bring the lion back? So the brewery is called the New Lion Brewery. And uh, last year we became the UK's first 100% 
community-owned brewery. We raised 180,000 pounds from 270 investors. Uh, and we're the, one of the very first 100% community-owned breweries in the country. But the thing that, that I love about that is it should be that I could go to Sheffield, say, and, and, and it always used to be the case, you could go to Sheffield or wherever, and there would be things that you would be able to have in Sheffield that you couldn't have anywhere else. You know, there were kind of cakes and kind of breads and particular kind of beer and particular dishes that were that was sort of indigenous to that place and that you would have to travel to Sheffield to have this beer because you couldn't get it anywhere else. And uh, and I love that, kind of really bringing that diversity into our food culture. There's a brewery in Santa Rosa in California called uh, Russian River Brewing Company. And one of the things they do every year, that they do a beer called um, Pliny the Elder. And every year, just for two weeks, they brew a beer called Pliny the Younger, which is only available from the brewery over those two weeks in that time so many people come to visit it that it's worth something like six million dollars to the economy of this place people filling out hostels and hotels and and stuff to come and stay there you know and and i love this idea that 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 every bit of that diversity that we put back it's like when you go to italy you know and you go to a visit you go to a village and they say like ah you must try our olive oil it's the best olive oil in all of italy but the 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 next town down the road you don't want to touch their olive oil it's disgusting you wouldn't wash your car with it and then you go to that village and they're like ah our olive oil is the best in the whole country (laughs) but where is that that kind of embrace of diversity of tastes and flavors and that used to be, you know, you travel around Europe on the train and everywhere you went, there was like kinds of pasta and cheese. And, and actually now you just arrive there and there's just supermarkets. You know, we lose so much. You know, that, that diversity is so, so precious, I think, to our experience as human beings. What a lovely expression. I love That's that gross. story, the brewery. Great job. You like beer, obviously, Rob. Good beer. Only good beer. I I want to play a game with you. And and this is kind of back on the old imagination game. Could we play reimagining the future with Rob Hopkins? And could you give us some highlights? So this is the imagination game. So as you said, we need to reimagination. We we need to reimagination our societies, our cultures, our towns. Reimagine, whatever kind of word you want to use. So could you give us some quick ones? So, So school, energy, Town centres, all these type of things. Give us some ideas. Love the school, school, I think, should be reorganised so that it's no longer taught on subjects, it's taught projects. And kids get to do what, follow what they're passionate about. We get rid of testing out of schools. Uh, we allow teachers to train for an extra year and then we just allow them to teach without uh, being completely constrained by curriculum. Our schools are surrounded by food gardens and uh, renewable energy. And so going to school is like stepping into the future we need to create. So for those young people, it's completely normal. They use the surrounding town, the surrounding city as a place where kids can really go and learn from the people with those expertise in the towns and school is as well as being uh, um, about academic performance it's also about learning to use your hands so kids leave school with a whole range of different skills uh, our towns and city centers i think post covid 
we really realize, well, why do we need office districts? What do we need business districts for? We need to re repopulate that uh, with people and communities. We need to be taking cars out of large bits of our city and then to returning that space into something that uh, is good for biodiversity and nature and connection. It's already happening in Barcelona. They're taking a 30, they're taking 30% of the streets in the center of Barcelona and turning them into forests, basically, and places for people to meet and connect underneath the trees. Uh, we would be looking at cities which are uh, much more biodiverse, where we uh, are that grow much more of their food within the city. So if you flew over the city on a uh, in a, in an airship, which is what, probably what we'll be doing then rather than the helicopters, and you look down, you would see loads of gardens on on, on rooftops as well and rooftop farms. Uh, you'd see a real kind of diversification of of the kind of businesses there. So you'd see a lot more small businesses, and and uh, uh, and I think we would also be in our cities looking at thinking in a really joined up way. So rather than just so rather than saying right, we have a mental health strategy over here, we have a public health strategy over here, we have a housing strategy over here, and a food strategy over here. We look at them all as being part of the same thing, and we say no, we need to look at how we build houses. And the, and, and, and the kind of houses we build as being part of a mental health strategy. We need to be looking at, um, there's a beautiful thing I, I talked about in the book, which was the idea that, um, that we would be starting bakeries as a mental health strategy. We know that baking bread and working bread is really good for people who, who, are, who haven't been well mentally. So we should, there's an expression I read somewhere, they said, baking is the new Prozac. You know, maybe rather than giving people Prozac, we invite them to go and we, we prescribe them to go and do some stuff in a bakery. Um, we started a bakery actually during COVID. Fantastic. We started a Bakery. What about, what about economy? So like, you know, at the root of, in some context now, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, like capitalism has its wonderful bits and it has its flaws as well. And if we were to reimagine economies where prioritized people and societies over profits, what would you reimagine? How would you reimagine an economy? You would reimagine an economy where 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 you would start by what you by how you measure how successful it is. That at the moment we just measure a success of an economy by how much bigger than last year. I mean, imagine you know with your kids, right? If if you know if there is a there is a while in the evolution of of your children where the fact that they're bigger than they were last year is considered part of this is a good this is they're growing in the right direction they're bigger than they were before. If that was the only measure. And they just kept on growing and growing and growing till they're about 50 meters tall. After a little while, you'd think something's going really, really wrong here. You know, actually what you want your kids to do is to grow, ideally to just be slightly shorter than you are, and then to start growing in different ways to become kinder and wiser and more skilled and more connected and more resourceful. Actually, we don't, we don't have that assumption for our economy. We just say, is it bigger than last year? Grand. Okay, that's good then. You know, the fact that with the fact that cancer rates are rising and anxiety is rising and uh, people are less and less able to walk home on their own after dark and there's more, you know, all, all the things that we don't want to happen in society, we don't measure, we don't factor those in. So we'd start by saying, is this, is this economy uh, building well-being every year? Are people happier than they were last year? Do, do people feel more uh, agency over their future than they did last year? Do people feel 
uh, more part of a society than they did before. I, I did an interview as part of the podcast with some people from an organization uh, in Canada who work on this idea of well-being economics. And I said to them, how would you measure this? How would you know? What, what things would you measure? And, and, and it, I was really touched. One of the guys said, well, maybe one of the things you would measure is the number of girls able to cycle home on their own after dark. Maybe that would be one of the measures you would have. Because what needs to be in place in society for that to be the case? What needs to have changed? We would need, uh, you know, there would be lots of things that would need to have shifted that would indicate that we were moving in the right direction. In the same way in Bogota in Colombia, the mayor there said, you know, we measure the number of children playing in our streets as a measure of well-being. You know, so we could sit down and, and, and we could brainstorm a list of things like that that would be the things we should measure. The fact that... The fact that an economy is bigger than it was the year before is is really neither here nor there, I think, because uh, because also every time the economy grows at the moment, that also means an increase in debt, in anxiety, in carbon emissions, in plastic. You know, what's driving and underpinning that model of growth is actually under, undermining all the other things that we consider to be progress and making the world a better place. So you have to start with what you measure. That's beautiful because we... We found that with our own business, that being a product of our current economy, that growth was the only model we knew. And we consistently have tried to grow and grow and grow until it eventually got it put too much of a strain on ourselves and on what we were trying to do. And mm. uh, we've kind of we yeah. had started making that turn back to becoming smaller and COVID kind of fast tracked it and made it quite apparent <laughs> that small is beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a philosophy that we have with with the brewery is, you know, if we end up getting to the point where we're exporting cans of beer to China, something has gone horribly wrong in this in this in this business. Actually, what we want to do is to grow to a point where we're where we are successful here. I, I always like to say when whenever we have meetings, I say the point of this brewery is that we don't employ people to brew beer; we brew beer to employ people. You know, and we want to get to a stage where. Uh, where lots of people can work with us and we do something that's really great. But then maybe we get to a stage where we think, okay, so rather than investing money in bigger and bigger and bigger, maybe we should invest it in supporting new businesses to start that spin off of our business. Maybe we need to invest in improving things uh, around where we live. Maybe we need to have a whole sort of social strand about working with people who struggle to get into work and teaching them about fermentation in different ways. You know, there's, there's different ways you can grow a business rather than just that conventional thing of, are you exporting yet? You know, why would we want to export? I mean, actually, what I'd love is, is that you know, so some breweries model is we're going to brew and sell and we're going to sell through supermarkets. We're going to brew more and more and more through supermarkets who are going to push the prices down and down and down. So we're going to have to brew more and more and more and more. And you get on that kind of treadmill. Our model is we're going to make beers that's so fantastic in a setting that's so delightful that people are going to come and drink it there at the brewery. And then that's where your profit margins are fantastic. If you're brewing and just serving it straight to people, your profit margins are much, much better. And people have a much better time. So, you know, we need to we need to create the models which are about the well-being of the people who work for the business and for the community around it, I think. I love here, this. Here. I totally love this. Like, oh, my God. This is very refreshing, refreshing Rob. I know I, I have a dream. So I, I've had that a dream. Was for, class. What a fun game. 
Brilliant. Um, like I've had a dream for yeah in recent months. I think so. So we have what we call our Sunday podcast group, and this kind of came out of pre-COVID. There was a an interview that a friend a doctor did that was really technical about coronavirus and what it is and what it meant. So I asked a friend to listen to it, who's a doctor, Sean, and he listened to it. And um, after that, we all sat around and we discussed it. Uh, and then we did it all the way through COVID and we did it over Zoom when we weren't allowed to meet up. And it's something that has enriched and offered so many different thoughts, diversity, real. And, it, and it's been different topics each week. So each person, someone picks a different podcast and every one week. one week, Carmel O'Dwyer picked Rob Hopkins and Transition Towns. And it was a great reminder of where we had started back 13 years ago. And we went and visited Totnes back about maybe six years ago. We were invited to do a, a recipe box for Riverford Organic. We okay. stayed in... We stayed in Totnes and... Uh, in like the, in that pub overlooking the river, it was like the Queen's Head or I can't remember what it was called, but it was something like that. It was something quite British. <laughs> Very the, lovely. The what, Steam Cricket. Yeah, the Steam that. Something yeah. like that. And I remember you telling a funny story of a German guy coming over once uh, <laughs> and he kind of goes, you still have cars here in Totnes? I thought this is the most environmental town in the world. Uh, and similarly, when I arrived, it was like, oh, well, this is just like a town. I thought this would be. Yeah, yeah. But, but then it was one of the few places that I've been to that I actually said, I could live here. This place is really just has a really nice feeling to it. Well, there's no main supermarkets. Yeah, it just, it just it, it had there was a real soul to it. There was a real sense of connectivity to it. I, I couldn't. People used to joke that there was more crystal ball therapists <laughs> in Totnes than anywhere else in the world uh, yeah, yeah. but there was a wonderful connectivity to the place uh, and, and anyway to get back to my dream so after that podcast that Carmel chose and we listened to your talk I was like oh cool we need to get this like big centre in the middle of the town and like say for example I want to like get a new piece of clothes I can bring in some clothes someone can teach me how to tailor we can make it beautiful similarly I want to make furniture I've recently I built a tree house with my daughter and we used we didn't use local wood we used wood from the hardware shop I don't know where it came from but that sense of you know furniture instead of like going into Ikea and just buying a new couch we get wood from the local forest and from the local mill and we bring it down and there's someone there that'll teach us with tools and you can rent tools. And there's this sense of connected community in so many different aspects, like your brewery, like a bakery, like a, yeah, I'm, I'm excited here, but uh, mm. that's, that's part of my dream anyway. I mean, I mean, isn't that, isn't that, you know, there's an exercise that I do when I do talks where I say to people, I spent lockdown building a time machine and I found some plans online and I had stuff I had lying around in my garage and I've built this time machine and uh, we're going to go, we're going to get in it and we're going to travel to 2030. And then there's various different theatrical ways we do it. But then I say, okay, imagine we're traveling to 2030. It's not utopia. It's not paradise, but it's the result of the previous nine years having been a revolution of the imagination. The, the nine years in between were the years in which we did everything that we possibly could. And so I invite them to then imagine that they're being picked up out of 2021, flying through those times and then landing into 2030 where, but where we've arrived, it's a low carbon, more resilient, more local, more diverse, more just future, whatever. And then I just, we just all sit for a couple of minutes and I just allow them to go for a walk around in their imagination. And then they come back and share what they saw and felt. I've done that with like 10 people in a room I've done it with 1,500 people in a hall. And what always really amazes me is that what people come up with is pretty much always the same. People say the bird, the first thing people always say is the bird song is so much louder. And then they say the air smells really clean. And then they talk about 
how they feel much more part of a community, they feel more connected to other people. Uh, they talk about how there's so many less cars than there were and, and people feel places feel safer. And there's something about what capitalism does is it sells us things which, which release dopamine. It sells us things which give us a short term, whether it's chocolate or sex or, uh, or, or new shoes or whatever, things that give you a short term kind of like that. And when we have an economy that is based on short-term pleasure and dopamine, then we see uh, a big rise in depression and anxiety and addiction. And what that exercise does, I think, is it, is it, it kind of allows us to hop over that and into, well, what would a society look like if it gave us contentment and happiness and conviviality and connection? And I've never done that exercise and someone's gone, oh, uh, yeah, we've got this massive new Ikea on the edge of town. It's fantastic. And I've got my new 10G phone. It's amazing. It makes toast uh, and everything. You know, actually people talk about, people talk about all of that stuff. And I have this kind of theory that, that we're living at a time when social media and everything is convincing us all that we're all wildly different from each other. And we all have really different things that we want the future to be like. And so therefore we should all fall out with each other and be really shitty with each other. And, and actually when you do, when I do that exercise with people, I think actually if you push the bar out a bit and you ask people to be imaginative and playful in that way, actually most people really want the same thing. You know, it's not like the, we're much more similar than, than we thought. And I put in a proposal I'm waiting to hear from the BBC about doing a radio program and going around the country, talking to very different kinds of people and doing that exercise with them and saying, describe that 2030 to me. What does it smell like and sound like and feel like? You know, And I think, and, and I think we have so much more in common than, than, than we might imagine we do. Amazing. Amazing. And how do we, like, this is back to, so the model which you're suggesting, which is wonderful, which is a kind of open source idea for people to, to look up transition networks, use all the resources there and start it in your own town, in your own communities where people live and try to start this revolution, as you say, of the imagination of reinventing our own local environments and towns and centers into the world which we want to live in. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I yeah cool. Great. So if, 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 if people go to transitionnetwork.org, there's a thing on there you can download for free called the Essential Guide to Doing Transition, which is a kind of a distillation of everything we've learned about how to get this started where you live. So I would say to people, just download that, have a read. And you don't need everybody to be on board. You need, you need a handful of people, you know, to get started. Put on a film, put on some events, invite people along. And just get started and try some things out and do some things which are very visible and uh, which people will see and go, oh, that's cool. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't thought of doing that before, you know, and build off what you already have. You know, you've, you've already got a, a, a you know, a, a successful uh, a business to doing with, with, with the food market. Maybe you can build stuff out from that and invite people to be part of that and, and uh, you know, connect up with other people. And there's already loads of stuff in, in, in place that we can, that we can build off infrastructure that's already there. Amazing. Rob Hopkins, you're fabulous. So much fun. <laughs> Genuinely. Oh I've enjoyed God, this I immensely. Uh, can you talk about your book and where people can learn more about you, Rob Hopkins? Because I feel your message yes. is wonderful. Was it, was it published locally and printed and distributed from your own kitchen? <laughs> from local trees, local yeah, leaves. I wrote them, I wrote printed by your kids. Myself. Printed by your kids. <laughs> and posted by your wife. 
yeah. By carrier pigeon. All of that, all of that. It's, or can uh, you buy it on Amazon? <laughs> yeah, definitely can't buy it. Well, you, you could buy it on Amazon, but buy it in your local bookshop, order it through them. It's called From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. And if you like it, then you might also enjoy the podcast, which is called From What If to What Next, which uh, is a, you can find them through your... Through Patreon. Your it was great. Platform. It's on Patreon too, yeah. So if people subscribe on Patreon, it's only £3 a month, but it really, really helps me to to, to resource doing it properly. And uh, one of the things that we just did, so robhopkins.net is the blog that I do, where a lot of this stuff is. And we just did these lovely things that you'll find there where we have uh, taken some of our best bits of the conversations of people talking about the 2030 they dream of, and then we've made animations that go with them and they're really beautiful. So have a look at robhopkins.net and see those there as well. What fun fantastic rob you are thank you for your time you've been wonderful a wonderful (laughs) and antidote for much of uh modern day ailments fantastic (laughs) fantastic wonderful well do you know every interview i do from now on will be will be a bit of an anticlimax i think (laughs) uh, in terms of the enthusiasm and the passion of the people doing the interview so thank you for that you've made this i I look forward to having having... do you do any non-alcoholic beer in the new lion's head i'd love to have a i look forward to having a drink with you at the new line the new line uh, in the future the new line brewery uh we don't do a non-alcoholic one but i'm sure we'll get you a glass we can of get water. apple juice we'll get you a glass <laughs> of water have a glass of apple juice. All right. i can't wait to have a glass of water with you rob <laughs> great yeah that was brilliant thanks no what fun uh thank you rob you're fabulous thank you guys. really really are yeah. deadly as you can see we're total fanboys we absolutely adore rob's work what a legend like really uh that was i feel so inspired i feel so hopeful and i feel like i can't wait for the next 10 years where like it gives me that uh, in Spanish is the word chispa that spark that kind of sense of like you know inspiration to the new direction and the new possibility which we can all reimagine but I thought it was more than that that it was more than inspiration and chispa because I think there's tangible examples of results of things which we can actually do to transform our own economies and our own experience and I thought it, it was the perfect balance of not theoretical imagination but practical examples and I know I'll certainly go away with the idea of how are we going to start another, have another go at transition towns, Greystones, and how we can transition our own town and transition that. Anyway, I hope you got as much out of it as we did. And let us know on social what you thought of it. You know, it's something that, a conversation which we'll listen very to time dear and time to again. Our heart. Tottenham is a wonderful place to visit. Rob, super inspiration. Can't wait to read his book. And yeah. I look forward and to having, having that glass of water in the new line. No, I, I look forward to listening to this in 10 years' time when hopefully we've, we've implemented a lot of these theoretical ideas. So that's what I hope for. Anyway, enough of our ramblings. Thank you for being a part of this community. Keep in touch with us on social. I'm wishing you a wonderful week ahead. And here's to a better world. And fair play to you making it this long in the, in the thing. So. We love you. Bye, 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 bye. bye, bye. bye, bye.